You're listening to Across the Street, Across the Country, a production of DKI Canada. The other thing that was extremely important to us was find somebody that would be a good DKI member fit. We did have quite a few people uh, kick our tires. We, we basically vetted them. As, as to whether that would be something that fits because it wasn't just about the money. At the, at the point where we saw that doing it ourselves was actually not going to work. From part one of our series in succession planning, that was Gladys and Roy Abrams with some very candid and honest talk on selling their DKI business to a new owner and entering a new stage in their lives. That transition is working out for the affable Vancouver Island couple, as you heard in that episode. But the before, during, and after challenges the Abrams faced, well, they serve as a bellwether for others in the DKI family at both ends of a succession. Those passing on that DKI torch and the one grabbing it. On today's show, we get some wisdom from an outside expert who knows a thing or two, many, many things actually, about making that transition as smooth as possible. My name is Denis Grignon, and this is Across the Street, Across the Country. You speak unaccented English, so you're a Franco-Ontarian? Yes, thank you for acknowledging that too. I grew up in in Cornwall, Ontario, and I, I often struggle to convince people in, in other parts of Ontario that there are Francophones not from Quebec who are born and bred here, and there's like a million of us, so. Huge, huge uh, poppy Franco-Ontarian. Right off the hop, I liked Donald Cooper. This is a man who clearly takes a genuine interest in the person he's talking to, the person he's asking questions of. Donald doesn't talk at you, but to you. Key characteristics, really, which make for a great speaker and business coach. Donald has worked with literally thousands of businesses around the world, consulting, conducting workshops, and delivering what he calls transformational boot camps. One of his specialties, yep, you guessed it, the business transition. Much of Donald's experience in the business world was born via his family's business, Cooper Canada, a world-leading maker of sports equipment and a Canadian brand icon. Donald, welcome to Across the Street, Across the Country. My pleasure, Denny. Okay, before we solicit your wisdom and uh, your advice for owners looking to get out of the business, exit the business, can you um, are you comfortable sharing your own personal experience with this topic? Oh, absolutely. I, I have no secrets uh, except from my first wife. Cooper Canada was our family business. And in two generations, we built that business from 11 employees, tiny company, to a global uh, enterprise with 3,000 employees. We became a public company. Our stock was traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, but still family controlled. And and uh, it was my f- my father and then my brother and myself, the three of us and 3,000 wonderful people. And uh, we eventually sold that business for a number of industry strategy and family reasons. Uh, and I then became a retailer of ladies' fashions. And I had never been a retailer and I had no real experience with ladies' fashions. But uh, there I was and uh, did $15 the first day 
we had a warehouse store in Markham, Ontario, uh, $15 the first day, and I was the only employee, to a few years later being voted Canada's outstanding innovative retail business of any kind. And that was a partnership with my wife. And that's a very different dynamic, Denny, because, of course, if you if you tick off your father and your brother, you can go home to your wife. But if you tick off your wife, where are you going to go? I have to ask you this, Don, because you brought it up. Are we talking about your first wife here or subsequent wife? No, my current wife of 33 years. Okay, so it worked out. <laughs> so it worked out. So I've been both a manufacturer and a retailer. And then for the last 20 years, I've coached uh, family businesses all around the world. Uh, and one of the key issues is uh, the whole succession and exit. So what was that transfer like when, when, you're, when the Cooper business transferred ownership? What do you remember about that? Well, we accidentally sold our business to the wrong people at a company that had been uh, successful since two, uh, so no, since 1905 was destroyed in three years by the new owner. So when you're looking to sell the business, my expression is when you find someone you think you'd like to sell it to, ask them for a urine sample. <laughs> in other words, do your due diligence, find out something about them because we didn't. And the short version is it ended badly. So with that, then, what questions or concerns should the owner selling a business, what, what, what questions should they first address? Great question. First of all, when do they want to exit? I had a guy saw me speak at a conference, called me from Philadelphia, and he said, boy, you were great. And uh, I want to sell my business and retire. And I think I could use your help. And I said, well, when do are you thinking to do that? When do you want to leave? He said, oh, the next couple of months would be great. Not going to happen. Hmm. Takes six to eight years uh, or sorry, uh, three to, to, to eight years or six years uh, to make this happen. And then to whom are you going to sell it? To a family member, to a, a, a manager in your own company or a group of managers or an outside third party. And then the next question is, what's the business worth? What's its value versus your financial needs to have a comfortable uh, and happy retirement? And then can the business run without them? So many people have built a business that cannot run without them. And then they wonder why nobody wants to buy it. And then what needs fixing so that you can get a decent price? Because no one's going to buy a business that's riddled with problems and inefficiencies. You bring up a good point, Donald, about having to, to, to do the repairs. And, I, and I'm guessing you mean that literally and, and, and figuratively, because I think an owner doesn't often has overlooked a lot of those things that have to be fixed, whether it's a whole bunch of doors that are hanging off the hinge or just tension in the workplace that they've kind of glossed over. So how often does that happen where the owner doesn't <laughs> recognize their own shortcomings of the business that they're going to sell? That's such a great question, Denny. Uh, all the time. All the time. They're in denial. I have a sign here on my office wall. It says, the beginning of wisdom is the recognition of reality. <laughs> there is no wisdom in la-la land, and denial ain't just a river in Egypt. So they're often in denial about what's wrong with their business and why it's not saleable. 
so what would you suggest that they become aware of that to, to, to not be that myopic or, or that, uh, uh, or have that ability to just kind of look past it? How, how can they help see it? Well, they, first of all, they can talk to their own team because their own team probably knows lots about what's wrong in the business and they're afraid to speak up. Uh, and then sometimes they just, they, they need some outside help to have a look and, and say, here's what needs fixing. I mean, it doesn't have to be completely broken. It just some parts of it, bad systems or toxic employees. No one is going to buy a business with toxic employees who they have to deal with. Right. And a fresh set of eyes is, uh, are probably going to see that, whereas the existing owner might <laughs> yes. not. What are some of the realities that business owners, they may not realize when they're thinking about leaving the business? My four realities, and I've done this work with, with hundreds and hundreds of companies, the business is likely worth less than you think it is. Hmm. Privately owned small businesses typically sell for three to four times earnings or sustainable free, free cash flow. And so people look at Nike, 48 times earnings, Under Armour, 60 times earnings, whatever, Tesla, whatever. And they go, well, I'm going to get 60 times earnings, 50 times earnings for when I sell my business. You are going to get three to four times earnings. And people say, well, that's unfair. I go, yeah, but it's reality. So number one, the business is likely worth less than you think it is. Number two, life in retirement costs more than you think. Unless you're going to sit on a park bench and feed the pigeons, it costs more than you think. Number three, your kids are not as smart, capable, or interested in the business as you think they are. They actually may resent it because you spend all your time at the business when they were growing up and the business took their parent or parents away from them. They competed every day for their parents' time and, and affection and attention. They competed with the business and the business always defeated them and they can hardly wait to get into the business to sabotage it. I see it all the time. Wow, and that may even just happen subconsciously. They may not realize they oh, want to sabotage absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. But they're doing it. I've, I've, I've had to deal with a number of those situations because uh, the parents don't want to sit down and deal with it. So they bring me in. Okay, number four. It typically takes three to six years to put all the pieces of the operational and financial and people puzzle into place and tidy up the problems to make a sale happen smoothly and properly. You can't wake up one day and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Three to six years. In bigger companies, it's eight years. And you know what? So many clients say to me, well, the kids, the kids could maintain the business, maintaining it is just a slower form of death. They need to be able to grow the business. They need to be able to take it to a whole new level. And be invested in it mentally and uh, emotionally and, and physically and, and everything. And, and I guess match whatever their parents had. Absolutely. Okay. How does a sale to a non-family employee compare to the transfer of a family member who is part of the existing team? I'm thinking I own a business. I got a couple of kids who are working uh, as my employees in the business and a non-family member says, you know what, I want to take over the business. What have you seen in those negotiations where the parent is going to leave and now those children are going to be working for someone who's not a relative, not even not a parent? Well, if the next generation are going to stay and work for a new owner who's not part of the family, 
there's there's huge uh, red flags there uh, because if that next generation kid has has been given special circumstances, they don't have to come in on time. They can come in late. They don't have to work that hard because they're family members. Well, the new owner's not going to put up with that. So if the next generation kids act as if they're owners in the business, but in fact, the parents have sold the business to a third party outside person, then they're not the owners. In their mind, they go, oh, well, my name's over the door or whatever. But you don't own it. You sold it to somebody else. It's just an emotional transition that lots of next-gen kids couldn't make. In, in terms of, of, of buying it from their parents, they often think the parents are just going to give them the business, just hand it over for free. What are the parents going to live on? Another big red flag here is that parents say, well, I'll teach my kids how to run the business. And I look them in the eye and say, you can't do that because you don't know how to run this business. You're reasonably successful because you've been doing this for 20 or 25 or more years. And you know enough to get around the stuff that you don't know. And so just your years of experience. But the kids don't have those years of experience. And you cannot teach them to be professional managers because you're not. You can't cram 25 years of experience into your child in a, in a few months. Yeah. Well, let me let me give you this position here. What if I'm that third party? I'm working for somebody and my coworkers are the children and I take over the company. What would you advise me as the third party, knowing that I'm now going to be working alongside the children of the former owner? Oh, well, if they've been brought up right and, and, and coached right, then it can go well. But as I said before, if they have an attitude, if they think, well, our family used to own this and I'm going to continue to behave as if we still own it. Does that happen often? Not very often because, frankly, the new owners want a clean house. To use a hockey analogy, it's a little bit like the general manager coming in and saying, I want my own coach. Oh, Sure. Sure. BDO, the big accounting firm, has done a study and they found that 70% of intergenerational business and wealth transfers fail because of family anger, distrust, bickering. I've worked recently with a number of clients where this has been a huge, huge problem and the businesses fall apart. Let's come back to the family dynamics, if we can, for a moment, Don. Let's say, and I'm sure this happens all the time, and certainly there are uh, DKI members who have several children working for them. Let's say the parent is ready to leave, and there are a couple of children who are saying, okay, we want to become a partnership. We don't want you to just hand it over to one sibling. We, we all want to run it equally. What would you suggest there? What have you seen? Potential disaster. Oh. Uh, I have worked in so many of these situations. The kids don't get along where they have different, very different levels of ability and, and, and interest. Resentment builds up. I've been working with two sets of two brothers who own a big, a, this is a pretty big business, $78 million in sales, five locations, not in, in the disaster remediation industry. And two sets of two brothers merge their businesses together. They don't get along. One brother's trying to run the business. The two of them don't care. And the other brother is a bully and uh, but not capable, but a bully. And he is grinding the business to a halt. 
they made five and a half million dollars less profit than they should have because of this mess. People of different abilities and different interests who happen to be related by an accident of genetic happenstance. Another client, there are two brothers where, where the father gave the business half and half the shares to each of the two brothers. One of them is capable trying to run the business. The other uh, is a low-level employee who insists on being the paid, paid the same as his brother who's running the damn thing. And they fight and disagree about everything. It's torn the company apart. It's torn the family apart. The business was stalling and dying. And I said, you got to buy out your brother. I fought with him for a year. He said, oh, no, that'll upset the family. I said, I have done this hundreds of times. And it always ends either with the business dying or one, the capable person buying out the incapable person and sending them on their way. It must work sometimes. When, when you have seen it work, however few that is, what has made it work where siblings can share the business, inherit the business, and, and share the responsibilities equally? There are uh, six things required for a partnership or family business to work. They're non-negotiable. Number one, shared vision for the future of the business. These are the circumstances that will make it work. Uh, shared values in their business and their personal life, morals, ethics, values, shared values. Number three, shared commitment to the business, both willing to, or all three or four willing to do the work. Number four, confidence in each other's competence and an agreement about who will be responsible for what. Number five, rapport with each other's personality. And number six, the ability to have courageous conversations and respectful debate. I had a client whose four kids wanted to buy uh, the manufacturing business in the family, four kids. And the father came to me and I knew the family pretty well. So I said, your four kids don't like each other and they don't get along. And your whole industry is moving to China. So it won't even exist in Canada in 10 years. So here's the thing. Tell the kids that you'll sell them the business, but you're not a bank. You're not going to finance it. They need to go out and borrow the money somewhere else. So the kids went out and borrowed $12 million and they bankrupted the business in three years. The people they borrowed the money from, the company they borrowed the money from, sued the four kids personally. And then the four kids sued each other. They save money every year on Christmas cards because nobody is talking to anybody else in the family. So there's a time to say, yeah, I'll sell to you, but I'm not a bank. See, when people hire me to help them out with some of this stuff, I tell them, you're paying me to, to keep you out of a trailer park for the rest of your life, eating craft dinner twice a day. Okay, so how does a business prepare themselves for the big change in their life? Great question. My presentation on this subject, whether it's to large groups, small groups, whatever, is succession planning and exit strategies, preparing your business and yourself for the most important financial transaction of your life. And so few people prepare the business, but almost nobody prepares themselves. And so when people talk to me about, say, oh, I'd like your help. I said, what, tell me about your hobbies. And they say, what does that have to do with it? And I say, everything. Because if you have no hobbies, 
The business is your business. It is your mistress. It is your neat fort, your neat fort where you go to hide every day. And it's your hobby. And while you're talking to me about help with transition, succession, and exit, you don't really want to leave because it's your whole life. Don't make your business your neat fort. When we're kids, we all built neat forts. Put a blanket over the dining room table and chairs, or we'll build a tree fort or whatever. We all built for well, adults build neat forts too. It's called their business often. It's where they go to feel safe, secure, and in control. It's where they go to hide from reality. So the subtext there, Donald, if I understand this correctly, is when you exit the business, exit the business. Don't don't be hanging around after the fact and, and maybe taking a part-time job in the business you own. That's, that's what I'm gleaning from this. If you belong to a church group, get a bunch of guys together and go to Honduras or Guatemala and build an orphanage. So you could do some great work around the world. Or if you love golf, say, I'm going in my retirement, I'm going to golf on every continent in the world. That's going to be my mission. Or you love fishing. I'm going to do trout fishing on every continent in the world except Antarctica. And so you, you, you have a bucket list. And then the other question I always ask these folks about their relationship with their spouse, do you still like each other? Because it's a whole different dynamic if they don't like each other. And, and, and the, the owner of the business doesn't want to sell the business because then he won't have an excuse to not go home. Locally in the community, how could you how could you use all that you have learned to coach and encourage the next generation and young people in, in, in about being an entrepreneur and about business, whatever? How do we create a relevant and active retirement or you're going to die statistically in three or four years? Donald Cooper, thank you so much for your time on this. Some, some great advice, <laughs> some great wisdom and guidance. Thank you, Denny. I just apologize for this croaky voice. Well, your message came through loud and clear and uh, we're, we're grateful for it. Thank you so much. To learn more about Donald Cooper's work as a business expert, speaker, and coach, not just about business transitions, but many business-related topics, go to donaldcooper.com. To learn about the work that DKI does, go to dki.ca. A leader in Canadian property restoration, DKI Canada provides services to insurance, commercial, and residential clients from coast to coast. Whether it's an emergency response, water damage mitigation, fire and contents cleaning, mold remediation, or complete reconstruction, the DKI members are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If you're ever in need of emergency assistance, the number is 1-855-DKI-TODAY. That's 1-855-354-2329. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our program, please do. We, we love hearing from you. And we're always open to story suggestions as well. You can reach out to us at info at dki.ca. And in the subject line, just write podcast. And please tell others about our show and, and rate us. That helps others find us. Our theme music was written and performed by Close Kicks, which you can find on your favorite music platform. Additional musical bridges written and performed by Graham Lindsay. DKI Canada actively contributes to creating a better future through environmental protection and social responsibility. Focused on leaving things better than they found them, DKI is committed to using environmentally sustainable cleaning products and mitigating risk in environmentally sustainable ways. 
Across the Street, Across the Country is written, produced, and hosted by me, Denis Grignon. Thanks for listening. We're back in two weeks with a brand new episode. I grew up in a noisy factory, and my brother's name is John. And with a lousy PA system and a noisy factory, Don and John are just way too similar. So we kept taking each other's phone calls accidentally, and it was frustrating for everybody. I became Don Old. <laughs>